Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast in Osborne Clark's Energy Innovation Podcast Series. This series looks at the issues and opportunities for innovation in the energy sector as we push to realise our net zero ambitions. My name is Deborah Harvey and I'm an Associate Director in Osborne Clark's Energy Projects team. I also co-lead our Energy Innovation Group. We're seeing an increase in acquisitions of digital and technology businesses in the energy innovation sector. And when we talk about digital and technology businesses in this context, we're primarily concerned with businesses which are developing and utilizing energy trading, balancing and management technologies. We're seeing this being of particular interest to institutional investors who hold energy assets, as well as to energy developers and energy companies the latter of which are big users of energy software. I'm joined for today's session by two of my specialist colleagues. The first is Matthew Lewis. Matt is UK head of Osborne Clark's Energy and Utilities Group and is a partner in our corporate team. And the second is Tamara Quinn. Tamara is a partner in our commercial team and specialises in non-contentious intellectual property and data protection. Matt, Tamara, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, hi, Debs, no problem. Good to be with you. Matt, I appreciate that many of our listeners will have a lot of experience of the due diligence process, but I thought it would be helpful if you could outline what we're talking about when we talk about due diligence in this context. Yeah, by all means. So um, due diligence is a key part of any acquisition or investment process. And really, it's it's the process by which you try to get a full understanding of what it is you're actually buying or investing in. And uh, depending on the nature of the acquisition or investment that you're making, the due diligence process can cover lots of different angles. So uh, typically, you would see a legal due diligence process um, and we'll come on to talk a bit more about that in detail. There will also be financial due diligence, particularly if you're acquiring an asset that's in an SPV that has any kind of trading history to it. But also you might have technical due diligence, which infrastructure investors will be very familiar with. Just checking that if you're buying an asset that is ready to build, for example, it is actually capable of being built in the way that you're expecting it. But you might also have market due diligence or other insurance due diligence. There, there might be particular areas, depending on the nature of the business you're investing into or the assets you're investing into, where you need to get that full understanding. And so ultimately, I think it comes down to the process looking at two different things. There's a, a compliance element. And you have to remember that if you're investing in or acquiring an asset or business through a corporate vehicle, you get the benefit and liabilities that every, everything that that sits within that corporate wrapper. So you need to be sure that you know what is in that wrapper and have a good understanding of any potential liabilities and compliance issues. So there's that aspect to it, but there's also a kind of verification aspect, which is to make sure that as a buyer, you will have attributed a value, a kind of hope value to the asset or business you're acquiring. 
you have to try and verify whether that is justifiable, whether once you've made your investment or acquisition, over time, you will get back what you're expecting to get back and that all the pieces of the jigsaw are in place to be able to do that. Now, of course, you don't just rely on due diligence for that. There's a, a suite of documents that will be negotiated. But frankly, you don't want to be having to rely on recourse through documents through an SPA or investment agreement. You want to be in a position where you fully understand what you're investing in or acquiring and not having to look to enforce contractual uh, recourse later on. Thanks, Matt. You, you mentioned the, the due diligence process, the legal due diligence process as being an important area of, of verification here uh, and one of the many work streams that will be going on at the outset. Um, what would you say are the key areas of focus for that legal due diligence process? That boils down again into these two main themes, which is compliance and verification. So most deals involve a, a corporate wrapper, a corporate SPV, or a trading business in some kind. And you need to be sure that by investing in or acquiring that, you are not inheriting some liabilities or uh, something that you will need to unpick in the future. So there is a compliance element, and it's 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 probably the, the bit of it that gives due diligence a bad name, because as lawyers, we will be asking questions of uh, vendors or um, companies to which the answers will often be no, not applicable, no, not applicable. But, you know, we have to ask these questions. We can't assume that we have the understanding about the company unless we ask the questions. Uh, infrastructure assets, for example, almost universally, they will be held in SPVs which don't have any employees. Nevertheless, you know, we can't make that assumption. So we have to ask whether there are any employees, whether there are any pension liabilities, whether there are any litigation or claims, whether there's any health and safety issues, all of that kind of stuff. You would typically get a kind of no, not applicable, no, none response. And, you know, vendors and, and companies get quite frustrated about having to write NA on, or no on each question. But it's very, very helpful from an investor or acquirer acquirer's point of view. There's that bit of it. And then the other bit is actually the kind of verification of value point, which is depending on what you're investing in, you really need to get under the skin of what you are valuing. So if it's if it's a kind of asset-based SPV, you need to make sure that it's capable of supporting the income and the profit that you're expecting for the life of the project. You know, are those building blocks in place? If it's a trading company, you know, what is the profit and trading history? What contracts are in place to be able to support that? Does it have the right assets, people, and of course, intellectual property, which is something we're going to drill a bit uh, deeper into. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I, th I think the, the mention of verification of value is um, is a nice link through into that. Um, Tamara, I'm keen to draw you in here. Um, there's obviously an increasing understanding that data is a, is a valuable asset class, particularly in the context of the sorts of businesses we're, we're talking about here. Um, what, what legal rights are there in data? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very good question. And uh, just picking up uh, Matt's point there about the response NA, as, uh, as, as IP and data lawyers, we get that a lot. We get NA 
And really, it's because often people don't really understand what intellectual property rights there might be, particularly around areas like data. So we, we get NA, and actually it's not NA, it's, it's stuff that people don't understand enough about it. So, um, and I think data is a particularly tricky one because, you know, you hear lots of people talking about ownership of data. And on the one hand, you get people saying, oh, who, who owns the data or we own the data. And on the other hand, you get people saying, ah, oh, well, you know, there's no ownership in data, it can't be owned. So I think there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding around about it. But setting aside the, the sort of ownership of data from a legal point of view, there is protection for and around data. The main types of um, protection um, that are involved are database rights, confidential information or trade secrets, and possibly copyright to some extent. But I think it is fair to say that intellectual property rights protecting data are surprisingly patchy, uh, not helped by the fact that one of the main protections, database rights, is, is in itself often doesn't apply to quite a lot of databases, much to the, much to the surprise of people who have those databases. So database rights uh, exist in the collection of the various elements of data into a database, as the name suggests. But the test for whether there is the existence of a database right and, you know, if so, who owns it, are, are not straightforward. And it's been further complicated by Brexit because there isn't necessarily a reciprocal protection for database rights as between us and uh, the European Union. A particular issue is that where databases of data have been say, automatically generated as part of, you know, this concept of a, a digital or a data exhaust, so i.e. something that is produced just automatically as part of your day-to-day -day operations, maybe be collected in an Internet of Things type way, that may not be protected by database right, although it's, there might still be other forms of protection for it. But that's an area where sometimes spending time and, and money actually taking that data exhaust that's been automatically generated and spending some time on selecting out the relevant data um, sort of really curating it and working on it can actually create potentially a database right when there went to be one before. But confidential information and trade secrets, I think it's something that people often don't think about it. Um, they think more about things like copyright or patents, database rights and intellectual property. But confidential information is actually really important because if nothing else, most of the potentially valuable data people have got, it's going to meet the criteria for the test of confidential information because it's going to be non-public it's going to and it's going to have value there will be um, confidential information rights uh, in in almost all databases so I, th I think those are the sort of those those are the key issues and it's it's also important to think that there's also things like there's copyright in the software that underpins the platforms which collect and hold and manipulate data and that's very important as well to to not lose sight of that plus a lot of data it doesn't play around as raw data it will um, be turned into reports it will be you know may well be printed off or um, structured in some way into documents and those documents themselves may well attract copyright protection thanks tamara could you, uh, applying that to the, the DD process that we've been talking about, um, could you give us an overview of what you would be looking for in that process um, to enable you to evaluate the value of the data that we're concerned with? 
there's three key aspects to it. Um, there's, is there IPR protection for the data? And if so, what type of IPR protection? Then there's a the question of, well, who has those IPR rights? Who has the rights that allow them to use, control, exploit that data? Areas I'm particularly be looking at is, well, who has actually accumulated that data? You know, is it the owner of the asset itself? I mean, imagine you've got a wind turbine or something like that. It's generating a lot of, a lot of uh, remote sensor and other data. Uh, is it the operator? Is it the owner of the asset? Is it uh, someone who's managing that asset? Is there a, a power aggregator to whom the operator is going is agreeing to supply energy? Have they got data? Or is it, you know, as it's quite likely, is it a mixture of all of those people? So who's got that data? And that will help us to understand who might own um, intellectual property rights in it. There's also around database rights some important questions about not just who has accumulated that data or stored it, but who, who has made decisions about what data is being collected and who has invested in those decisions. And that's relevant to the question of who owns database right as well. Then there's a point I touched on earlier about to what extent has data been curated, verified, cleansed. Yeah, that, has, that has an impact on whether there might be, for example, database rights in it and who might own them. But also really important is looking at contracts around data as well. It's quite common that uh, contracts don't really address the question of data explicitly. And um, therefore, often what we're doing is having to look at historic data contracts to see what are the data clauses which impact on data, even if that was never the original intention of those clauses. So it might be a combination of things like possibly data protection clauses, um, confidential information clauses, clauses which talk about um, the use that can be made of um, information but that's created as a result of services or use of equipment. And so we're often having to try and sort of patch it, patch it together when we're doing due diligence exercise. So that, and, and, and that's really important. It's also important in contracts to look at what not only what is said, what is not said. Are we are we going to be in a position where we're going to have to imply there might be um, implied terms in contracts that are relevant to data? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Thank you. Um, okay, so when we've done our comprehensive due diligence process, um, Matt, what do you do with the results? Ultimately there's a kind of sliding scale depending on the outcome of the DD process. The first kind of gateway is obviously a, a kind of no or, or go or don't go decision in relation to the deal itself and often ask us to pre prepare a kind of red flag report on that basis to just understand whether the deal is a goer or whether there's aspects to it which would prevent it happening at all. Once you've got through that process, then the question becomes one of, of value. Have we identified anything in the due diligence process that uh, undermines the value that our client attributes to the potential opportunity? And if, in their opinion, the answer to that is yes, there will obviously be a renegotiation there around the investment terms or the acquisition terms. The, the next stage, I suppose, is if there's something that doesn't really have a direct impact on value, um, but it's perhaps more contingent. It may do, depending on circumstances in the future, then you would build in uh, certain protections within your SPA or investment documents to be able to mitigate against that 
that issue. And in most cases, we, we, we do see that due diligence issues are ultimately addressed uh, through the warranties and indemnities and other protections that we include in our deal documentation. And, you know, everyone hopes that they're never looked at again, but at least then you've got something there that identifies that it was recognised as an issue at the point of negotiating the deal and provide some recourse if ultimately it comes to it. And then finally, there's the category of things that just kind of uh, creates a to-do list after completion of the acquisition or investment. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this um, discussion about intellectual property and very often the intellectual property kind of arises or creates or, or, or presents itself in a way that isn't properly managed. And it can be then a question for the, the buyer to be able to put appropriate measures in place to protect that intellectual property, um, whether that is through a formal manner, but also to you know have another look at the contracts tomorrow was talking about to understand whether they have the correct provisions in them to um, to provide that protection going forward. So yeah, ultimately, in most cases, if a deal happens, you know the outcomes of the due diligence process gravitate towards the bottom two categories in that list. So including provisions in the deal documentation and providing that to-do list post-completion to to make sure that everything is best placed going forward. That's great. Thanks, Matt. And Tamara, do you have anything to add to that from a an IP and data perspective? There's so so many things. I, th- I think uh, physical issues. Don't forget that these. Um, although we talk about data data in the abstract, I mean, there's there's going to you're going to have to actually make sure you've got a way of um, getting hold of this data. So how how are you actually going to get a copy of this data? Is are you going to take ownership of the computer that it's sitting on? Is it going to be transferred to you using some secure um, protocol to transfer it to you? Is it going to be given, you know, given to you on the, you know, the equivalent of a memory stick? How, how are you actually going to get this data? And how are you going to make sure that um, it's not still residing on the computers of your vendor in, in an asset um, acquisition situation? So that, those are important issues. Also, I mean, don't forget about things like cybersecurity as well. A lot of reports of increases in hacking and theft of intellectual property confidential information, both by individuals and by uh, state actors or state-sponsored actors uh, if, you know if data is particularly valuable you want to be asking questions about you know how secure systems are on which the data sits and often in, you know for practical purposes the reality is that that doesn't happen until after uh, the deal has been done and you need to be getting your technical experts to look at whether the right security systems are in, are in place or heaven forbid that there hasn't been some previously undetected hacking or access, potentially even something uh, that's that's ongoing. So there's there's, there's a lot that can be uh, done around, around things like that, as well as um, looking at things, uh, the sorts of issues that I mentioned earlier around ownership of intellectual property, who's created things, looking at the contracts for with, with people who might have been involved in collecting that data in the first place and just seeing what, what are there areas where you might want to renegotiate or you might want to change things when you come to renewing contracts. 
Thanks very much, Tamara. That's really helpful. And as you say, cybersecurity is is very much a growing issue and the energy innovation sector is certainly not immune from that. We're, we're seeing an increased focus there around cybersecurity too. I'm conscious that's all we have time for. So um, thank you, Matt, Tamara, very much for, for joining. Um, thank you for listening. And if you do have any questions, please do get in touch with any of us. Um, otherwise, we hope you will join in to the next podcast in the series.